Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joined today, he's a small business owner, entrepreneur, and advocate, Tyler Howell. How are you doing today, Tyler? I'm doing great, Alex. I uh, appreciate you having me on here. Thank We're you. so excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. So I was, um, I mean, that's a real, it's a complex story. Um, birthed by a 13-year-old. Um, taken away when she was 17 and then so I was four adopted at six and then and then from that point on I was in a stable uh, a stable household Um, and so that's where I mean that's a whole story we'll keep it simple Um, so yeah so my childhood um, a big part of my childhood was um, I don't know learning to I don't know, learning to love, learning to be loved. Um, uh, I mean, you have to work with me on this one. I don't know what to say because it's complex. You're good. With you being an adopted family, what's the biggest thing those parents taught you? Well, I don't remember a lot of my my earliest years, but my responses in my later years are pretty telltale of the beginning years. And it took me being realistic, it took me until I was about 20, about 21 years old to fully accept that my parents loved me and had my back. Um, and that took some trying, trivial times. And that was my first introduction, um, post-addiction to the incarceral system. And so uh, my childhood was a big tug of war emotionally, I would say. Um, I mean, if for parents who adopt older children, um, there's a good probability you're going to have some behavioral problems. Um, and so my childhood was a big test for my parents um, who loved me and adopted me, knowing what I had been through. Um, founded in a, a LDS religious household. So there's a really uh, strong emphasis on the family unit, which to this day, um, <clears throat> I know a lot of adopted uh you know, adopted adults whose parents abandoned them during those hardships um, and those 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 friction-filled, uh, you know, periods. And so I attribute the religious foundation to them <clears throat> sticking around through the hard times, the good times, the ugly times, all the times. And um, so it's a little hard to answer that question because um, I don't remember too much. Um, if that makes sense. Um, so post early childhood, um, when you have certain traumas, you can have memory, uh, like you block out memories. Mm-hmm. So from about eight and below, I have a really hard time remembering things and especially six and below. I don't remember anything. Um, and so, yeah. You talked about with being adop- adoptions, kids sometimes have behavioral changes. Did that play an effect with getting along with other kids as you've gotten older? So eight and older, did that play in an effect on how you got along with other kids? Well, I, um, <clears throat> so I also moved around a lot when I was a kid, um, but then also when you're in the foster care um, and then when you get moved from environment to environment to environment with different kinds of people as a child that you mm-hmm. have to um, please through behavior, um, I became really good at adapting. So I always fit in, but I wasn't necessarily loud, if that makes sense. 
So I actually got along pretty well with, with other kids because it's my natural tendency to, um, <clears throat> in an adaptive state like that, uh, I do well with other people, if that makes sense. So I wasn't, um, it, it didn't interfere with, you know, any of that kind of stuff. I think that whole concept of adapting kind of goes now with the school way where kids are finding that group that they kind of fit in with, but they have to adapt their kind of behaviors in each group to get along with everyone. And I feel like I did that where I just wanted to be friends with everyone. But even though if I didn't click with someone, I kind of were like, okay, how can I do that? But in your situation where you're moving around, it's a lot harder because you might be in an area that you might not know much about and you're kind of having to rely on some sources to kind of figure that all out. Yeah. Well, what do you think pulling back from your memory? Like, what do you think are the, the, the key, um, the key ingredients or, uh, you know, the key pieces of, of being able to do that? I think you have to be true to yourself. Don't fake it to make it. I think that is where it gets harder because kids nowadays know a lot more than people think and they are one of those things that they'll read people they'll understand if you're not really being your true identity and find those people get to know those people because you might think oh I want to be in that group but then after a while you're going to figure it out that that's not for me and you have to go with what your gut feeling is well, it's funny you say that because I remember in high school specifically being with like the cool kids. Yeah. And then I remember removing myself and then I went into more like the skater group because I had what you just said. I realized that like there was much substance to this relationship and this dynamic. And I found that over here. So it's funny you mentioned that because I think that's probably an experience that a lot of us have had while we were in, in the school system. With high school, you mentioned going from the cool kids to the skater kids. The activities those skater kids, were you into skateboarding, scootering, rollerblading? I don't know what they were doing, but were you into those types of activities? No, I wasn't in the activities. It was the, uh, i say the personalities, the okay. um, the the interactive style. Because um, when you go from you know certain groups of kids, um, everything is different. The behavior, the social culture. Um, and so, and that actually ended up leading me into, that's when I started smoking weed. I would, I would drink some alcohol in the cafeteria with some other cool kid, other, like we were cool kids, but like it was, it was a different, yeah. So no, not skating, but maybe it was more the behaviors that, uh, I don't know if that makes sense. I think you bring that up. Did you kind of have that rebellious, is this where the rebellious yeah. side kind of started? Yeah, that's a good way to put it too. Yeah. So it fit in with the rebellious. Yeah. Did you ever get afraid of getting caught smoking weed, alcohol in the cafeteria, things like that? If my school ever saw that, oh, people would get caught in a second. No, in my school growing up. Well, no, because what we do is we mix it. So we mix it in like water bottles so oh, that yeah. it would have like colored juice to it and stuff. And so I can't remember all the specifics of it, but I know that we did that. And as a as a kid, when you get away with something, maybe even as an adult too, like you get that sense of uh, satisfaction, that gratification from like getting over, you know, being sneaky and whatnot. So it fed into that little psychological paradox too. In high school, did you ever figure out what you wanted to do as a future? Sometimes we're asked that dream job of ours. Was that ever in a game plan for you? 
Um, I don't think, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't recollect specifically. Um, I didn't grow up with some sheer determination to be this or be that. Um, I ended up going to group home at 15. So I got my, I graduated, I did ninth, 10th, no, I did 10th, 11th and 12th grade in nine months through independent study in Clark County. My parents sent me away. Um, and so I graduated high school at 16. So I didn't go, I only went up to ninth grade, but then I finished um, in, a, in a group home. So I was actually out of the group home at I so I might my college my high school diploma at 16 years old. So I was actually uh so yes yeah, so that's kind of part of that story too. Did it feel unusual to get a high school diploma at 16 when normally people are getting them at 18 graduating high school and then on their way to college? 16 you're still young. I mean that's the driver license age right there. Well, yeah, it, it was different because I ended up getting a job and I was working um, while my friends were still going to school. So it was definitely different in that in, in that dynamic. Um, so social social life was a little bit different, but I was only I was only out of that group home for six months. So I turned 17 and then no, I, uh, I was out of it. I was 16 for six months. And my parents sent me back to the group home and then uh, I was there for another like five months and then I came back for four months and then my parents sent me off to Utah and then at 17 I was on my own so that's a whole that's sorry that was super confusing but, <laughs> but so from, I think there's a good way to explain it so from age of 15 to today I've mm-hmm. only been free on the streets for like one two three four five six six year one two plus now I've been out for four years I was only out for like six and a half years from 15 wow all the way to now seven years. So for seven, from 15 to 32. So for about a good majority of those, I was in group home or as an incarceration facility. So why did your parents keep sending you back? Was there like a specific reason? Like, was there a game for them to send you back? Were they hoping something would change or something different would result if you were coming back after the group home? Um. Well... A child like like me um, is overwhelming, um, mm-hmm. especially from a family that never dealt with a you know a child a child with traumas like I have had. And so, um, without a doubt, my parents didn't know what to do. Um, and I think that's um, a, a really important discussion for a, a, another day. Um, is is what do parents do in these situations? especially when these children have like abandonment issues and these other things. So you are doing what you think is best for the child with while unknowingly agitating um, pre-existing traumas and, and like, you know, abandonment's a real thing. Um, and so it exact, it, uh, it magnified the problem mm-hmm. in a sense, instead of alleviated the problem, it didn't prevent it, excelled it. Um, if that makes sense. Um, Cause even at the group home, I remember specifically the moment we we're learning about drugs and I was only there for smoking weed and drinking alcohol. I'm learning about ecstasy. I'm learning, learning about all these other pills. And actually when I got out that first time, I actually went and tried ecstasy specifically because of what I had learned in the group home. So that's a really, so I was a really troubled child and really hard to deal with. So it's like, 
what do you do in that case? You don't know what, to, you don't know what's going to work. So in your mind, you're like, send them off to the professionals. Looking, so, I mean, that, that's not a way I know how to answer that. <laughs> good. Looking at where you are today, looking at that time, do you under, do you kind of understand why they did that? Maybe at yeah. the time you're like, why are they doing this? But as reflecting back, does it make a little bit more sense on why that decision was made to send you there? See, and, and as I become more educated, so I'm a sociology major. And so um, I love human behavior, what makes people do the things that they do. Um, and so the more educated I become, the more neutralized I, I become, if that makes sense, when I think back to that, because what do you really expect people to do and how, what would you, we do in that same mm -hmm. situation? Like um, people have certain capacities for different things. So like, as I've grown older, just like with my birth mom, I met my birth mom when I was 29 up until that moment. So like I have forsaken right here tattooed. Um, and I really, for, you know, a good 28 years of my life, I felt abandoned and forsaken. Um, when in reality, um, I found that God does work huge miracles, big miracles. And when you have big picture mentality, um, when you're in the small, you can't see the big picture. So mm -hmm. I didn't see how being taken away, how in the long, in the long run was going to actually provide ample opportunity. It was going to break generational cycles and it was going to allow me to be in environments that can cultivate, you know, I don't know how to say it, um, you know, you know, in a sense, like how cultivate a, a, I don't know, productively in a healthy manner. Um, I don't know, because my birth mom lost her other three kids as well. So like, um, I mean, that's a hard one. It's like, I'm super grateful, but in those moments I felt hurt and I felt, you know, abandoned, but now fast forward again, I'm 32. I look back and I'm grateful. I have no regrets. Everything that happened has molded me to who I am today. And, you know, and along the journey, I made it really tough for a lot of people, <laughs> including my parents. So, I mean, I don't, I don't blame them. Like it's, it's hard too, especially after forgiving my birth mom, but having to understand the story and put myself in her shoes. And especially as I got more details and you realize like, what does a 13 year old really going to do? Mm -hmm. her, her birth mom abandons her because of <clears throat> the situation. And so it's like, forgiveness has to be given it's hard um but as i've gotten older it's become way easier and as I've, I've become more removed from that life and from those experiences and i add the education to it i see um, from a more mature and uh clear uh perspective i definitely think where you are today you are definitely doing the right thing and reflecting and because you brought up a great point where it's hard to say what if something happened because it didn't happen at that time. When you're living in that situation, you you're thinking the worst of those situations, but you're taking what happened and you're bringing positives out of it. How you've learned from it, you've gotten to where you are today, you've gotten better, and that's where a lot of people have challenges now. Is they think, oh, I went through that path. It wasn't like how it should have been. I always say. If I didn't go through my challenges, I would not be where I am. If I didn't have a challenge, why would I be doing the show? There'd be no point doing the show because I can connect with people on their challenges because I've gone through my challenges. And the challenges you face, you've learned so much. And that's important nowadays. 
No, hundred percent. And, you know, as you experienced in your life and I've experienced in mine, like for me to rise, I had to see other people rise and I had to hear about other people rise and I had to know that other people have risen. And then I can pull strength from that. And I can pull perspective from that. I can pull, you know, all sorts of inspiration from that. And so that's why what you're doing is so great because people need to be able to connect, like you said, because we all have an overlap when it comes to facing those challenges because I mean, it takes, you know, the same pieces of us to overcome those just different kinds of challenges. So I'm glad you overcame yours. That's for sure. You talked about at a young age getting into ecstasy. Was this the start of a different path that you are now taking, which would lead into a big part of your story? Um, So I wouldn't say it was big by any means, because out of all the other drugs I've done, that doesn't even it pales in comparison to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, negative effects and long-term effects, cognitive effects. Um, but that was the behavioral pattern that got me to where I'm at today. It was the seeking those things, you know, rebelling. Um, and then once I got those tastes and I had those, you know, fun experiences, um, you know, living in the moment. Um, so uh, <clears throat> definitely from a behavioral pattern perspective 100% where it began it actually began before that when I was seeking out the things that I knew I wasn't supposed to do but I just sought them out because I was told not to do them and then Mm -hmm. the you know the path led before going into jail or prison did you ever have the moment where I need to kind of get away from this lifestyle like not be using drugs and things like that because it could end up somewhere bad um, that's a really good question. Um, I am sure in moments, yes. Um, and especially when I got in trouble. Um, but during it, during those, you know, relapses, during those, you know, phases uh, with different drugs and whatnot, um, I wouldn't say I was too, uh, the reality wasn't very clear to me, um, uh, mm-hmm. the impact of my, my choices. I wasn't able to I didn't have long-term vision. I didn't have that ability, I would say, because prefrontal cortex plays a huge role in my story. Um, and that's logic and decision-making. Um, so up up until the full cognitive development of my brain, um, most definitely, most definitely. Talk about the moment that you got arrested or went into prison. Talk about well, that my- journey. Okay, well, my, my first arrest was my federal offense, and that was for guns. Um, what I had done is I had been doing burglaries. So one of my druggy friends had showed me how to first, number one, steal cars, and then how to break into houses. And so at that point, to feed my addiction, um, I ended up do, doing burglaries and like breaking into cars and stuff. And I ended up coming across a house that had a bunch of uh, hunting, hunting guns. Uh, so hunting rifles and then a handgun. And uh, that's how my introduction started. I had absolutely no idea. I, this, is, this is the insanity of what I did. I didn't even realize that I was trying to get rid of guns. Like I didn't even realize like on the scale, like this is not something you want to be involved in it's like when you ask if I realized what I was doing when I was doing it and I wanted to escape it I didn't even understand the world I was in I didn't eat I was just 
oblivious. <laughs> and so that's when that started. That was my wake up call. Like when I got arrested, I was crying. Like they had me freaked out. Um, I literally, someone else, like, I don't want to get into all this, the, the, all the, I don't want to make this about it, but I, I experienced the ultimate betrayal because the gun that I ended up um, pleading guilty to wasn't even in my possession. So that, that first encounter with the system was not just that I ended up with five felonies and then a federal indictment, but it was my first huge sting um, when it comes to betrayal and people and, you know, the world that those choices um, encapsulates you in. How long without going into the legal stuff, how long was that first sentence for you? So I was locked up for a total of 17 months. And so, yeah, so a total of 17 months and then I got out. Um, so that's the answer to that question. What was in those first 17 months, what was the hardest thing now getting into a new routine where you don't have freedom anymore? You are in control by the system. Well, <clears throat> it was a huge wake up because before having been incarcerated, I had been in one fight in my entire life. Um, and that, that literally involved me getting punched. So like I didn't have this violent physical um, altercation, you know, streak. So mm -hmm. being put into that world was a whole new world because you have to be able to stand up for yourself. Um, and if you don't, then you're actually more likely to be involved in violence. And so it really turns everything that you, you knew in the real world upside down because you have to respond to things in different ways. But because of my childhood, I adapted really quick. But one of, I mean, this is an embarrassing story. This is great. I hope people watch this. They can laugh at me. Um, so <laughs> when I first got locked up, well, it's happened one time, but this is the one time, this is something that shaped me. Um, I ended up getting slapped and basically I checked myself out of a section and that was right when I first got incarcerated, like literally within the first like 45 days, like I've already, already experienced this, you know, this different world. And that is what woke me up. And that is when my super adaptive state came in, came into play. And that's when I really started doing the things that I needed to do to number one, protect myself in the moment, but then to prevent future, you know, provocations. But then it, it just, it changed my whole mindset. It woke me up like, Hey, this is where you're at, Tyler. Like you've got to, you've, you've got to get in line if that makes sense. Like, so let's we'll just say I was, you know, this uh, suburban adopted kid or, you know, the suburban kid, the suburban kid. And then you get thrown into this lifestyle with, you know, uh, a whole different crowd if that makes sense like <laughs> I'm pretty sure I didn't grow up with too many you know if that makes sense like it's a, it's a different lifestyle we see a lot of times on tv shows and even like the crime and stuff kind of tv shows where a lot of these criminals come in with egos they think they're the tough people on the streets not saying you are but did you kind of see that mentality in a lot of the other inmates where they think that they're all that but then they kind of get that wake up call, like, I'm not that type of person. That is just a persona that I had on the outside world. Well, and see, that's another thing that brings up a really important piece of like what's wrong with our incarceral system. Um, because you, you, even if, say, a person goes in there and they want to flip their ego upside down, um, the environment and the, the, uh, the mentality that you're surrounded with is pretty toxic. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's not the narrative spoken 
You know what I mean? So like, yeah, people are in there incarcerated and they're changing their lives and they're doing a lot of things to better themselves. But like the default vibe, the default mentality is, um, is to embrace your, your past in a sense and then leverage it in there in a sense. So yeah, like you can talk about people uh, making up like, oh, this big bad burglar, this big bad, you know, armed robber or whatever it is. Um, but a lot of people come in with like, uh, you know, street uh, credibility and street mm-hmm. experience. And so when you have that in there and this is their way of life, their way of being in or out, um, it, it, that, that's not, uh, it's, it's not as natural as you would think it would be. I think that's the best way to put it. I think it's great that you say that because for us, we're, we're, we've not been in the inside of a cell and we don't understand it. We're only getting a point of view from the outside, but for someone that's lived it, has been in there and you see what goes on. I think it's important that that voice gets out there because we can understand as outsiders that we don't know everything that happens. We're only getting that one-sided argument in a way. No, that's, I mean, and that, that's awesome because just, I mean, that's just the importance of putting ourselves in other people's shoes when it comes to anything, especially when there's punitive put on it. I feel that there has to be, you know, there's two sides to every story. Um, Yeah, no, that's, I, I couldn't agree more with you. We just talked about your journey and the challenges you face being incarcerated, but what's the biggest thing in those first 17 months it taught you about yourself? Um, well, the sad truth is um, those first 17 months didn't uh, send a clear message. Um, and I'll direct, I mean, I can I can associate that to prefrontal cortex and cognitive development. Um, I, I mean, the truth is I didn't have any plan. I didn't have any destination, I didn't have any direction. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. Um, it brought me closer to my family um, to the sense that I know that they, they love me and care for me. So that when I was 21 years old, that was when I was, um, I think that's when I was getting sentenced to federal prison. Um, and so that, uh, that's what came out of that was that realization. Um, so that's something even to this day, I remember. Um, and so, I mean, out of all that, I think that would be the key nugget would be, um, would be that, that piece. Um, but that's, I mean, I wish I'd give this good answer because the change didn't come till later. You know what I mean? I just, I was lost. But that's, I, you say like, you wish you had that good answer, but sometimes it may not happen right at that time. And that's just the life's journey. And you realize those things maybe later down the road. After that first initial um, sentencing, what was next for you? Did you go out and start, try to start something new or did you fall back into your old ways? Well, after that, I was put into a, a intensive inpatient program mm-hmm. and that, and so at this point too, it's important. I was on dual probation. So I was on federal and state. So if you violate one, you violate the other, you get double the consequence. Um, you might get them uh, concurrent but you, there's a good chance to get them consecutive, but it gives them that, that ability. Um, so that was a whole trap in itself too. Um, I was, so I was in this intensive, uh, I was not in a mindset to be in such a structured environment where literally you're told everything you can and can't do, um, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. going from 
a structure environment where you can't do anything you want going to another one that you can't do anything that you want in a sense that's how i viewed it in the moment um uh it didn't it didn't work well for me um and if you fast forward to the how i got sober and getting sober and getting my life together you can see why that didn't work for me because i ended up doing things you know taking things in my own hands that makes sense and so um the structured environment like that has just never it brings out my rebellious self um and especially at that age it yeah i I lasted like four months um i got restarted from the program like three times i ran went and got high and came back um they still let me come back and i still went back out and then at that point i'm on the needle so now i'm now i'm shooting up drugs instead of just smoking the drugs and so that's when it took a, a pivotal turn downwards for my use, because from that point on, my relapses included IV meth use. Wow. Did that ever lead to another sentence or was this just, oh, yeah. it led to something else? Yeah. Yeah. Because it led to something else. And here's another thing too, it's important. So obviously I'm not a very logical thinking you know, person, if that makes sense. And so in those moments, um, as soon as you know that you're going to go back for a violation Mm -hmm. and you're getting high on drugs, at that point, it becomes an all in, like an all or nothing mentality. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going back no matter what. Okay, I'm hopped up on drugs. I really don't want to go back. And so now it's you versus them. And so Mm -hmm. now you're committing crime on a level that you never did before because now your paranoia is running rampant. Um, your, your, your habits are different. Your lifestyle is different. You're on the move. Um, you've got nothing to lose at that point. You're like, well, I'm going in anyways. And so that was part of my uh, illusioned ways of thinking. Um, I don't know if it's the right word to use, but it was complete insanity. It makes no sense. But that was my, that was my thinking. That was my thinking. So as soon as I knew I was, as soon as I got high, I'm like, oh man, I'm going back. So then I start committing crime. And then I go back for a new charge, but it all started with the, oh crap, I'm going to go back for, for using. Then I went and committed crimes and then I went back on, on, on the, uh, the new, the new charges. Getting sentenced, did it ever help you get sober or was there too many temptations in a cell, in the cells that you're just keep going, keep going, keep going, just trying to get through the day? Well, it's important to know that people use drugs for a reason. And so there's a lot of traumas. There's a lot of things put on the shelf, you know, to collect dust hidden away in the dark crevices of your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, punitive, uh, punitive punishment does not alleviate or remedy any pre-existing psychological, mental uh, conditions or traumas. Um, in many cases, it will agitate it. Um, so, like when I went to prison, um, I I did one year in 23-hour day lockdown. Next year in 21-hour day lockdown, and so. Um, people have a way worse than that, by the way, but what I was getting at is the form of punishment doesn't, um, doesn't, uh, it doesn't fix any of the causes of the behavior. So why are you using what's causing you to use? Like, what is it, you know, what are your demons, like what's causing your demons? And you'd be surprised how many, you know, incarcerated individuals are former foster youth, for example, you know what I mean? And how many addicts are from broken homes, didn't have fathers, et cetera, et cetera. So when you get in there, see this overlying pattern of, you know, uh, traumas and life experiences, lack of structure, lack of guidance that's not being remedied. 
So you're not giving them the tools that they didn't have before when they got out. So they get out in the same, same version of themselves as before. And they go back to old people, places and things. So, and then when they get released and you can't get housing and employment, well, now you're even more pressured to go back to old people, places and things just to survive. So there's a whole, that's, there's a whole spiel around that. In that next go around, get into those final days before going back out to the world or the civilian life. Did you have a game plan this time? Did you kind of think um, I need to get sober? I've got to get on the right track for myself or my family. Well, so is this then, or is this my last sentence? Last sentence. So my last sentence was three and a half years. Um, so when I was about 27 years old, um, something changed. And I, <clears throat> I, I believe that that's my prefrontal cortex because um, that's about the time in a male when it develops. And I started to see things differently. Um, mm-hmm. I started to be able to play the tape through. I started to be able to see the long-term effects of current decisions. I started to be able to formulate a, a far broader picture of the world, if that makes sense, that I before couldn't. Um, and so when I got out, it wasn't... Uh, didn't have a plan um but i had a will that makes sense um and that three and a half years uh it 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 put a fire in me um is the best way to put it um because at that point after so many years and seeing so many things and experiencing you know getting sent back for not having an address and i'm being locked up just because i didn't have an address um the accumulation of those things um built a huge distaste in my mouth for the system. Um, I didn't want to be a part of it. Um, But then I also, um, part of my purpose building from that is, okay, how can I help change it? Mm -hmm. Um, How can I use my voice? How can I take action and work to impact, you know, justice impacted, you know, people who are in my shoes? How do we give voice to the people who are incarcerated who don't get to tell their voice because the voices that are heard are so loud that they they totally suppress those voices that actually need to be heard. If that makes sense. We talked about needing to see both sides of the story. Um, so I mean, there were relapses over those past four years. Um, but I mean, there's a whole story behind how I got sober. Um, and that's when it changed. And that was um, when I was almost 29. Um, and I got in contact with my birth mom again. So. Uh, to get sober one night, I just up and left and uh, used these little crowdsourcing apps like uh, Easy Shift, Observa Now, Moby, um, and some other ones. And I would I hop Walmart to Walmart, and that's how I got across country. And I went over to my birth mom's, and uh, that's when my life really changed because that's when this forsaken got turned more into seeing that I'm blessed. And so um, from that point on, my, pers- my perspective um, and the things that I had internalized and the experiences that I had internalized um, began to become untangled. And that, f- that foggy, misinformed, uh, younger, uh, unable to analyze and assess the world around me, uh, is able to dip back into there and start unweaving, um, you know, those, uh, those feelings of abandonment. And I started to see life from a, a more blessed perspective versus, uh, you know, abandoned, forsaken, lost, didn't matter, you know, grew up my whole life saying, oh, 
you know, if I saw my birth mom, I'd run her over once, turn around, run her over again. Now I see her for her story. She's a victim. And so through that, you know, I've been able to forgive her, but then also be grateful to have been taken away from her at the same time for my own sake. Um, and so that was a whole journey in itself. Um, and so, I mean, it took years. It took years after getting out to finally get to that point to where I left, met her, got into college. It's crazy. So it's a neat story. And then that leads me to today, but it all started with my trauma. My number one trauma was abandonment. So meeting my birth mom was the pivotal piece in healing my younger internal self. And um, it's just, uh, it's a God, it's a, it's, it's, it's a God thing without a doubt, because without that, I, I couldn't even be where I'm at. When in that time that you've gotten to know your birth mom, what is the number one thing that it's you've learned from that experience from learning that she's not come back to wanting to get to know you to how you take that into your life when you're meeting other people? Do you, is there something that you utilize there that you utilize with other people in your life? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think the, the number one key takeaway from that is just the, the power of um, childhood experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how to answer your question other than I have a, an insight through my own experiences for other former foster youth. And for people who maybe were from broken homes and maybe there's some piece of that that they hold on to that is, you know, feeding a demon inside of them, um, low self-worth, et cetera, et cetera. So out of all of that, um, uh, I don't I don't know how to answer your question other than um, our childhood has there's a lot of answers in our childhood um, that for every person is different. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of power in 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 revisiting and, and healing those experiences. I mean, that's just for me. It doesn't really I don't know if that applies for everybody, but no, you answered that because a lot of people, when you get to know them, especially with people in relationships and stuff, there might be something from their childhood that that's why they do something. Hey, they act a certain way, they think a certain way. And we're able to understand and learn more about that. So for me, not knowing who you were until just now, I'm learning how you do certain things based on your experiences. And I'm learning and looking at it from a different lens where we're not here to judge. We're here to learn because there's something valuable that you've taken from it that we could all utilize in our lives. And that is important because we haven't experienced that from where you've come from. Well, yeah, and I want to add, like, one of the reasons that I don't have any regrets about being an addict is because when you, the only way through is inside, so you have to fix your internals, and you have to put a, a lot of work into yourself, yep. um, it, it, it gives you um, a survival instinct need to do that. <clears throat> which when you go beyond addiction, it is a tool in a sense, because you are already familiar with transparency of self and acknowledging the ugliest truths of yourself and then being willing to face those because if you don't, you could literally die. Mm -hmm. And so one of the best things about being a healed addict is 
first of all, the fire from my experiences, but then number two is how it forces you to become a better you constantly, which once you break through that, like, I mean, we can take that as far as we want to, if that makes sense, because we're our own worst enemies. We're our greatest obstacles. Everything we want is on the other side of fear. So the more we learn of ourselves and then how we work and then how to make those changes, the more potential that we have. So like, there's a lot of power in be, having been an addict that, um, I mean, so there, there's gratitude in our, in our trials and our struggles, you know what I mean? So it's hard to see that, but in hindsight, it's a little bit easier. Our listeners love to learn more about the individual. After they hear their story, they want to learn even more about our guests. For all of our audio listeners, you're probably not seeing what Tyler looks like right now, but his look is very creative and artistic with all the tattoos. And I'm fascinated to learn, how did you come up with the tattoo art that you wear? Well, I have, there's, there's a lot of different things on me. I have reminders. Um, I have, you know, uh, commemorative pieces. So like my grandpa who played a pivotal role in my childhood, left the impact. Um, and so I have reminders. So I'll share this right here. This kept me, this helped keep me sober. It's funny because it worked, but I have, so my mom, Allie, and then my dad and my sisters, they're all on the inside of my fingers. But the reason that they're in the inside of my fingers is because if I shoot up a needle, then I have to see their names. Wow. So this, you know, I have, I have different things like that on me, but I, I put my mom because she's the thumb and the hand is useless without the thumb. And my mom is the glue and the rock of our family. And so this right here specifically, because I had relapses after where I was using needles. And so I had to see that. And so it's interesting how that actually played a role in reminding me of things outside of myself, because even today, it's the things outside of myself that keep me going. Those are the things that give me fire. Those are the things, you know, that give me fuel and, and ignite my passion. I, I love that. I have a lot. My, my, <laughs> my head's tattooed, my legs are tattooed, my stomach, my chest, my foot. I mean, I have a lot of tattoos, 23 hour day lockdown for a year. And then, I mean, what else are you going to do? And there's people that are back there for, I mean, there's people back there, literally, they come out every 72 hours for 45 minutes and they're by themselves in cells for years. And so, uh, I mean, well, what else do you do? <laughs> What age were you getting your first tattoo? Uh, my first tattoo, uh, I think I was 17. It was okay. yeah, 17 when I moved out to Utah on my own. Yeah, 17. What was that first tattoo you got? It's embarrassing, but I'll show you. It's this. I was in the Cottonmouth Kings. So it was a king spade. So it was like a little, it was like a little fad, super in easily influenced kid putting some garbage on me but it's part of my story <laughs> but like you said a lot of times you hear I love the stories where tattoos have a meeting I have one on my back and I would not put anything on me if it didn't have a meeting and I love the story about the fingers with the names of your family members because it played such a big role for you and you look at it even every day as you're going being sober where you see that your family is always with you no matter what, because it's on your fingers. You're always seeing it. Anything you're doing, you're always being reminded that your family is always with you. And I love hearing that. Yeah, I know, 100%. And the crazy thing, too, is like, 
who are the people that you can be in not conflict, but you can be in disagreement with, but you're still going to congregate together, break bread together, and you're going to have your different views, but you'll still come together. Yep. You know what I mean? You'll still be there for each other. And you don't, you don't get that with, you don't get the same thing in general with friends and, and other people, but family, that's why I'm grateful that I was adopted by my family because their strong family values have been a glue and a support, regardless of how I feel in the moment. Like you, it, I mean, God's greatest gift, family. Are you currently in Utah? Um, I'm actually visiting my sister. So that's why I got this beautiful uh, <laughs> princess bed behind me. It's my niece. So I'm in Arizona right now, uh, visiting with family over the new year. And so, yeah, Utah is where I'm at. What's the biggest thing you love doing in Utah? You know, people hear about certain aspects of Utah, snow, the religion, things like that. But what do you like to do in Utah that maybe some people don't know about? Well, that's a that's a great question. I'm not much of the tourist. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's a, I, I can't really answer that question. I haven't really. That's a, someone brought this to my attention recently, too. I don't uh, I've been because of my life choices and the lifestyles I was living and then the consequences following, uh, especially societal wise. Um, I haven't really gotten out there much. Um, it's not in my schema of things to do, if that makes sense. And like right now I'm in college, I'm trying to get this marketing business off the ground and I'm trying to get involved in creating uh, re-entry programs for um, justice impacted Americans. And so like in my mind, it's hard to have fun. Like you're asking for a question because I've already had fun doing all the dumb stuff. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's, uh, but the skiing hundred percent, we're known for, for our skiing, um, great slopes, great mountains, great powder. Um, so that, that's what we're best known for. I've, I've been, I've gone. Um, so uh, skiing, I would say, but I don't have the most fluffed up answer for that. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember I almost got a job in Utah for a football team that doesn't even exist anymore, but it was like the minor leagues for the NFL. And I almost got a job for that team but then the team went out of business right before my last interview. And I'm like, man, what would have happened if I moved to Utah? Like, I would probably start enjoying the outdoors even more because like you talk about skiing. I wish I could do that a lot more now. I'm in Missouri. And so it's a hit or miss with weather. You're in Arizona where it doesn't even snow. So <laughs> I always wonder like, where, where would my life be if the, certain things happened? But like we talked about earlier, everything happens for a reason. And we take those experiences, take those challenges we face, and we take those to the extreme and go all out with everything. No, 100%. Um, and I'm sure you're happy with your trajectory right now based on your experiences, because what would you have done without a job in Utah? Exactly. I I mean, I was in for jobs that I um, was so away from family. It was so hard because I'm like, well, I would have to take a plane ride to get home where now I'm only an hour away. And being in Utah, I would be hours away. And it would be tough because I'm a family guy. That's for me. I love my family. And I like having those weekends with them, weekday dinners and things like that. No, oh, that's awesome. You got a big family? No, I'm an only child. 
And so I have my mom and my dad and that's about it. And the grandparents. So that's about it. But I take every time, every second I spend with them and enjoy it because you never know what can happen. Well, question, are you, are you going to create your own family? I hope so. I hope so. If my girlfriend's listening to this interview, she'll probably hear it now, but hopefully. <laughs> That's so long into the distance that I haven't even thought about. I'm just enjoying life. I feel that I'm at a space where it's meant to be, like, excited about what's next. New year, except it doesn't feel like it's a new year. It's just another day. But just enjoy every opportunity we have. No, hundred percent, thousand percent. And I think our obstacles and our trials will definitely help us formulate of what's most important to us. You know, it's where we find out our truths, what really matters, what really impacts us, you know, what's long lasting and what's short lasting. Exactly. (laughs) Do you have anything on a bucket list, something that you want to personally accomplish in the next few years? Well, when you said bucket list, first thing was skydiving. But oh. when you said the next couple of years, um, that'd be my, just my, my business goals with my agency. And then I want to start getting books written. Um, I want to write some motivational books. Um, and so, I mean, plenty of things. I want to get into the re-entry program creation because I feel that my experiences, especially accumulated with some other diverse experiences of overcoming institutionalization and um, addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a, there's a lot of value in, in those and, and it needs to be formulated and put in front of, you know, you know, the right people that it would work for. Um, so that's something I want to get involved in. So I guess my goals are just to continue with what I'm doing and um, position myself to create a positive impact instead of just worrying about getting myself to be okay, if that makes sense. So my goal is to get me right so then I can start getting other people right. So that, that's my next you know, two years in a nutshell. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Embrace failure. Failure is an indicator. It is a signal and it is a compass. Um, don't don't let failures, um, which aren't even really failures, but don't let moments that feel like failure um, prevent you from continuing on because you re- never really know how far away you are from where you're trying to go, what you're trying to do. Um, and we learn a lot about ourselves through trial and error, which is, you know, uh, incremental failures throughout the journey. Um, so just like recently with my marketing crashed it, did it all wrong. I've never done a business before, but through that, I've gained far better perspective, figured out where my weaknesses are, what I need to tend to. And so if we just take that to our life. I mean, if our relationships aren't going right, we'll look internal. You know what I mean? Like if things aren't going right, um, I mean, there's, there's just flags abound around failures and, and trivial moments and just tons of signals, tons of signals. We just have to look and be willing to see ourselves as imperfect. Well, Tyler, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thanks, Alex. For real, I appreciate that and everything you're doing. It's awesome.
Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.